Welcome to Cellsiders, a look at the business and technology of batteries from the cell side of things. Today we're joined by our special guest, Shashank Sripad, PhD candidate working on lithium-ion batteries at Carnegie Mellon University. Shashank, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Ben. It's wonderful to be here. As always, I'm joined by my itinerant co-host, Jordi Sastra. Jordi, glad you're back for another week. Uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, hi, Shashank. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Mr. L. Glad to discuss with you these uh, flying batteries. Yeah, and as always, to complete the team, our mass manufacturing maestro, Mr. Litmus, Mr. L. Great to have you back again. Thanks a lot, Ben. Uh, hey, Jordi. Hey, Shashank. It's a, it's a pleasure to meet with you guys. And let's get started going up in the air after we've gone down deep into the valleys of uh, lithium mines. It's time to have liftoff. Let's start and just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. What's your superhero origin story? What's the radioactive spider that bit you and turned you into the PhD candidate battery researcher that you are today? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a really nice way to put it. I guess given uh, the point uh, in my career that I'm in, uh, I'd probably call it more of an apprentice to a superhero. Uh, so I'm a chemical engineer by training. Most of it uh, really started uh, back in India about 10-ish years ago. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, selected for one of these little internships with a really old uh, emeritus professor who was working on supercapacitors. Uh, that's where I really learned all the fundamentals of you know, electrochemical energy storage and batteries and so on. That, that's where the, the first sort of bug of fascination uh, sort of got me. Uh, and then following that, uh, I was able to somehow weasel my way into the National Aerospace Laboratories, also in India. Uh, and that's where I worked on supercapacitors for electric aircraft. Obviously, this was 10 years ago, and we're not talking about electric aircraft just conventional aircraft where we're trying to, you know, harness some, uh, uh, harvest some energy uh, from the aircraft wings to try and store them for, you know, oxalated power and, and things of that sort. So obviously as an undergraduate researcher, you don't really have exposure to doing a lot of work yourself. You're really shadowing a lot of other researchers in the lab. Uh, but this was obviously a great, uh, great sort of experience and exposure. So uh, I, I really wanted to, pursue this this sort of field uh, further, and I landed up in uh, CMU, Carnegie Mellon, uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, and the first sort of one, one and a half years at CMU, uh, most of my sort of exploration slash work was all uh, on fuel cells and uh, various other electrochemical devices, not really on batteries. And that was around the time batteries were really picking up. I was uh, fortunate enough to run into a, a, a class by Venkat Vishnathan, who's now my advisor. And he was doing a lot of work on uh, lithium air batteries at the time. Uh, and that's how, you know, things just came together. And, and uh, here we are. And you said specifically that you were doing work quite a while ago for um, batteries and capacitors for aerospace applications. So sort of surveying that landscape or that market over the last five, 10 years, how have things changed from when you got your first taste of it to what you're working on today? That's a great question. So, I mean, it's, it's a totally different world, uh, so to say. Uh, obviously, National Aerospace Laboratories is trying to you know, cater to uh, the military and, and you know, applications that are not really commercial aviation. Uh, nevertheless, uh, propulsion systems built on batteries was not really, you know, 
uh, a popular idea at the time. There were a few pockets of you know researchers here and there who were talking about it, but really no no mainstream attention to it as such. Uh, and and fast forward like three to five years uh, from you know 2011 2012. Uh, Batteries, lithium-ion batteries have really, you know, taken off. The specific energy has improved, you know, by a great deal. And that's when people started to take uh, electric propulsion for for aviation really seriously. Uh, and a, a lot of new concepts from NASA and a bunch of different, uh, you know, private aerospace labs as well started coming up. So Bell Air is one uh, that was very early into this game. Uh, and Fast forward to, you know, 2020, 2021, there are, you know, numerous uh, companies building, you know, so many different uh, kinds of aircraft uh, based on electric propulsion. So it's it's really changed quite a bit, you know, since in, in the last uh, 10 years or so. What do you think are the reasons for this boom in electric uh, aviation? Suddenly, 2020, 2021, we've seen how many startups, how many SPACs? Uh, what is your opinion? Yeah, that's a great point. So, uh, yeah, 2021, I think, uh, starting with February uh, till now, there's been about eight or nine billion dollars just in SPAC money uh, invested into different uh, just EVTOL aircraft companies, right? Uh, so, a lot of this has to do with uh, the improvements in lithium-ion batteries, uh, the, the way the specific energy has really changed. Uh, so, 2010. So. The, the incremental improvements in, in specific energy has been, you know, about 5 to 10 percent every year. Uh, but the minute it crossed sort of uh, the range of 250 uh, to 280 watt hour per kg, that's when, you know, people started to take it very seriously. So uh, actually to, to think about this, this sort of transition from the 2010s to 2021, where there's a lot of attention. One of the interesting things to look at is basically the comparison between uh, like a conventional uh, jet engine or a, a rotorcraft uh, uh, aircraft compared to you know an electric aircraft. So uh, one of the obvious comparisons is how energy dense jet fuel is compared to uh, you know a battery. So jet fuel is slightly a touch less energy dense uh, than gasoline. It, it clocks at about twelve thousand watt hour per kg. And uh, the best batteries are what, 240 to 300 maybe currently. Of course, there are, you know, prototype designs that, that cross that, but 240 to 300 is really sort of a commercial, uh, you know, lithium-ion cell that you can get off the shelf. So the, that difference is about 40 to 50 times. And then uh, when you think about electric aircraft, there's another uh, really key, key aspect uh, that's different from uh, electric vehicles in, in electric aircraft, which is, uh, what's called distributed electric propulsion, right? Uh, this this gets into a little bit of the aircraft side of things, but but it's 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 really important. So I'm going to try and flesh it out very quickly. Uh, now, when you look at say something like a helicopter, right? You see this huge rotor and huge rotor blades and everything. Uh, now, the reason why there's just one huge rotor or maybe a couple of uh, rotors in in most conventional uh, uh, helicopters is because uh, in conventional engines, the power density and the efficiency really uh, are not very scalable. So the larger the, the engine is, the more efficient it is and the more power dense it is. So, uh, but this is not something that applies to uh, electric motors, right? They're very light, they're scalable. So uh, whether you have 10 electric motors or one electric motor, the efficiency and power density don't, don't change too much. So 
what that enables is instead of having this one huge thing on top of a helicopter, you can now split it up and spread it all over the aircraft. So you have lots of tiny little rotors, uh, and this is what is called distributed electric propulsion. Now, why this is important is because uh, if you think about drag and how slippery an aircraft is when it's you know uh, passing through the air, uh, that huge rotor and that those huge rotor blades really are not very efficient in terms of uh, how slippery the aircraft is, right? But making them smaller and distributing them makes the aircraft uh, very efficient in terms of getting lift and reducing drag. So uh, this, so we talked about the difference between uh, jet fuel and batteries, right? That's about 40 to 50 times. Now this change from sort of uh, uh, consolidated propulsion to distributed uh, propulsion provides another four to five times uh, improvement. So now we're really uh, uh, coming closer in terms of you know the energy density differences. And obviously the other aspect that we all know from electric vehicles is that combustion is not you know as efficient as electric propulsion. So there you have about 1.5 to two times uh, of an efficiency gain. So we're already from 12,000, we're in uh, the league of about 1,000 to 2,000 watt hour per kg. So uh, and and as batteries improve, as they go from 200 to 300, uh, you start to really access some of these sort of flying ranges, right? Uh, and that's basically what's happened. Uh, over 10 years, uh, specific energy of batteries has gone from you know 150 to 180, all the way to 300. And now people are starting to see things like 300 miles, 400 miles as sort of you know viable uh, flying ranges. And now that's how a lot of people are sort of taking uh, this this sector very seriously right now. That's an interesting aspect that you mentioned, especially about uh, the rotor blades uh, becoming more numerous, but actually decreasing in size. It, it almost seems as if, you know, the industry is taking inspiration from, from drones that have been developed as of today and then just scaling it up, accom- accommodating for instead of camera components being built in and other sensors being built in. Uh, the actual capacity to carry uh, higher amounts of loads. That's a that that's a, a a great point. In fact, what actually happened was, uh, if if you went back to let's say 2013 or so, and you wanted to design a drone, uh, the the you could distribute the electric motors and and make you know four rotors and sort of create the, the typical quadcopter that all of us have seen in terms of a drone. Uh, but the problem is uh, the batteries were not supplying enough power or supplying enough energy to put any meaningful sort of operation. So even attaching a camera or a GoPro or something like that was not really feasible. And and one easy way to think about this is, you know, think about how small the phones were and how bad they were in, you know, like sort of eight years ago versus how good they are now. Uh, and that also has in large part sort of uh, been driven by the specific energy improvements. So uh, it's it's sort of gone hand in hand. So the drone industry trying to uh, sort of uh, move goods and parcels and things like that from one place to another. Uh, and and uh, that inspiring the larger aircraft industry, still small compared to, you know, like a Boeing 737 or any of those, you know, large airliners, but still larger than drones. So this, this sort of space where small aircraft uh, have have gotten uh, uh, really efficient at using these improvements in specific energy and sort of coming up with viable designs to uh, take us, you know, to to meaningful uh, flying ranges like 100, 200 miles or so. 
So one of these kind of uh, small aircrafts that you're mentioning is this famous EV toll, right? Could you could you explain us like because you 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 are very into this topic and I think you can illustrate or explain us what this really is. Definitely. So uh, EV tolls basically stands for electric vertical takeoff and landing uh, aircraft. So EV toll aircraft. Uh, now what that basically means is uh, it's able to take off and land vertically, like the name sort of suggests, and it it cruises in uh, one of several ways. So cruising is basically once the aircraft takes off, reaches sort of its uh, you know uh, stipulated flying altitude, and then uh, it tries to go to where, wherever it wants to go, the destination, and then it lands vertically. So uh, vertical takeoff and landing is is very similar to what you see in helicopters. So they don't re so the key here is really not needing a runway, right? So there's a helipad or now EV tolls uh, uh, require what's called a vertiport. So it's basically like a helipad from which uh, the aircraft can take off vertically. Uh, now, the, the key here is, uh, again, coming back to the disputed electric propulsion point. Uh, if we were to envision uh, sort of an urban area with a lot of helicopters trying to go from one place to the other, it's it's not a really nice place to be, right? We, we've all, we're all very familiar with how much noise uh, the rotor blades make. Uh, but with EV tolls, because of distributed electric propulsion and the smaller uh, uh, rotor blades, they're not as noisy. So uh, we're able to sort of uh, reduce the noise level, hence allowing the aircraft to sort of fly slightly lower uh, altitudes as well, and still make the same, uh, you know, uh, sort of flying distances. So the whole electric uh, vertical takeoff landing EV tall space is really uh, aiming at the urban air mobility space. What uh, that, That's what the sort of uh, technical term for this, this area really is. Uh, so it's basically aiming at moving passengers and goods from uh, you know, flying ranges of between 20 to 30 miles all the way up to 200 to 50 miles. So uh, it's it's trying to replace uh, conventional helicopters and also possibly try and uh, displace some of the uh, uh, you know terrestrial traffic really and and you know obviously there's a whole host of promises and challenges related to that. Let's dig a little bit into the cell side because I mean that's our name, right? Um, these uh, new EV tall startups and electric mobility startups have obviously, I mean, they have big ambitions. Um, you look at companies like Archer, like Joby, you read their investor pitches and read their financial projections. And they're definitely, you know, their ambitions are more than just replacing, you know, medevac helicopters with electric versions, right? They're really trying to create an entirely new market and an entirely new business model. Um, do these businesses need some sort of dramatic technological improvement in batteries in order to make the pure physics of their business work? Or can they actually go to market with what's on the shelf today? That, that's a really great question. So uh, it, the, the short answer is it depends. Uh, and, and obviously, the, the longer version requires a, a little more detail into uh, what's happening, obviously, on the cell side of things. So uh, it, it, it depends very strongly on the kind of aircraft, right? Uh, of course, I was just talking about how 
the the vision really is to try and uh, you know capture some sort of a market within the urban uh, sort of airspace. Now, uh, when we talk about specific energy, that's obviously one of the most important metrics uh, when we talk about batteries, uh, and we correlate that with the flying range of of an EV tall aircraft. There's obviously a, a large sort of spectrum here. So as you keep improving uh, specific energy, obviously the flying range improves, right? Uh, now, the other key that is different from electric vehicles here is the fact that uh, not only is the total weight of the aircraft important, so making specific energy important, uh, the, the power density or the specific power, what are per, what per kg is also just as important because uh, you're basically trying to take sort of a, a car-sized vehicle straight up into the air, right? And there is no help from the ground or there is a little bit of help from the air, but apart from that, there's nothing else. So uh, when you see a car starting and sort of, let's say, hitting 20 or 30 miles per hour, uh, the amount of uh, power required is, is, you know, let's just take it as X. The amount of power required for an EV tall aircraft is about five to six X of that. So, uh, and and the main reason is this vertical segment. And the other interesting side of this is uh, vertical takeoff and landing uh, aircraft require the same amount of power to land as it takes to take off. Because uh, what you're really doing is incrementally sort of climbing and, and reaching the flying altitude and then incrementally sort of descending and uh, reaching the ground. So, uh, you not only need high specific power, uh, uh, high specific energy and high specific power during takeoff, but also during landing. And uh, if you think about uh, what's happening inside the battery during landing, it's at a low state of charge, let's say 30 or 40 percent. And discharging the battery very quickly at low states of charge is generally very difficult. So uh, while the specific energy improvements from the electric vehicle space can be sort of carried over and used uh, in a lot of EV tall applications. Uh, the specific power requirements is something that really has to be solved by the EV tall industry because uh, what electric vehicle battery makers really care about is specific energy, cost, and fast charging time. They don't really uh, care about fast discharging times because you know if you think about zero to sixty times of EVs, it's already pretty good and and. That that's something that they're not going to bother too much with. Uh, now, this is where the challenge really starts, right? Uh, while the specific energy is somewhat uh, reasonable for current missions up to, uh, let's say, 100, 150 miles. So current lithium-ion batteries, uh, which uh, clock at about 300 or, or slightly more than that, watt hour per kg, they're able to hit about 100, 150 miles feasibly. but the power requirement is still a big question, whether they'll be able to, you know, uh, do this high power takeoff, high power landing over and over again. Now, uh, so uh, the sort of key highlight there is specific power in addition to specific energy. And there's one last really important point, which is also related to power, which is the fact that the end of life. So basically when we want to sort of, uh, you know, replace the battery pack, will not be decided by a capacity limit. So 
anybody who has spent some time in the battery industry has heard about the 80% uh, state of health as sort of the limit for you know, uh, end of life. But uh, for EVTOL aircraft, uh, this will not be the case. The reason is because they're really power-limited uh, you know, uh, vehicles. And there'll be a power fade limit. And uh, that is something much harder to determine, right? So because capacity is simply the amount of lithium ions you really have in the battery. And if you have 80% of what you had initially, the battery is dead or you know it goes to some other application. But with specific power, that's not the case. It's very hard to determine. So there are a few uh, you know, really important questions that the industry still, still has to answer. How are these companies actually going about solving these aviation-specific problems that you just outlined? So uh, in, in our experience, uh, you know, sort of surveying the space for the last uh, couple of years, uh, the aviation companies have not really uh, been uh, sort of entrenched in the battery space enough to actually develop uh, any new chemistries of any sort. They are still hoping for the battery industry to come up with the answers, uh, which is uh, somewhat slightly disappointing from a battery research standpoint because you want you know various different industries to try their hand at you know developing uh, new battery chemistries and, and uh, you know engineering designs and so on uh, and if you think about what could uh, answer the the uh, energy and power requirements of EV tolls uh, the the specific energy is more or less uh, almost there with uh, lithium ion batteries, you know, the 300 to 250, uh, 250 to 300 watt hour per kg is, is, is uh, more or less uh, usable uh, up to, again, 150, 100 to 150 miles. But beyond that, you need slightly higher energy dense materials. The interesting thing about uh, uh, aircraft in general is that there's already a lot of onboard, uh, you know, avionic systems basically trying to, uh, you know, cool the power electronics and things of that sort, which are really not present in an electric vehicle. So uh, when you think about uh, specific energies uh, of, at the pack level, not at the cell level, but at the pack level for electric vehicles, you see that, uh, you know, something like a Tesla Model S has, you know, over uh, 250 watt hour per kg, but at the pack level, it comes down to around 150, 160. Now, this will not be that big a problem for uh, aircraft, uh, EV tall aircraft to be specific. So uh, the reason is because uh, you can bank on the onboard systems that are already available and not uh, experience as much of a penalty in terms of the pack uh, specific energy. So uh, a cell that, that was about 300 watt hour per kg going down to about uh, 200 or 170 watt hour per kg for an EV and the same architecture used in an EV tall with the onboard thermal management systems and other avionics, instead of you know building a separate battery pack, uh, could sort of uh, give us a gain of about 30, 40 watt hour per kg. So instead of going down to 170, you're now at 200, 200 220 or something like that. So there are some advantages there, but obviously a lot of uh, attention is now on the uh, lithium metal space because. Uh, that's where you know drastic improvements in specific energy uh, could really uh, be seen, and uh, the the sort of uh, slight challenge with the lithium metal space being an answer to uh, the demands of the EV tall industry is the fact that uh, not a lot of lithium metal 
uh, cells, be it solid state or ionic liquid or you know uh, any any different uh, architecture you can think of, uh, they're not really geared towards fast discharge again. Or you know, in generally generally speaking, the rate performance is not not as good. So uh, again, the the EV doll industry waiting for uh, the battery industry to uh, give them the answers is is uh, not really encouraging, uh, but that that's where we are right now. So for, I mean, if we make an analogy to the EV space, right, and you think about the different, for example, cathode chemistries that are used in different kinds of EVs, right? You have LFP for cheaper cars, somewhat shorter range. You have high nickel for more high-performance applications. You have a very diverse landscape because you have a very diverse set of needs and diverse set of applications. And so there's a lot of different ways of solving those different problems. Um, it would seem that an EV tall application is a lot less diverse in its requirements. And so I wonder if you see the solutions for these problems being also a very diverse set of solutions, or is there really only a very narrow sort of performance window uh, where only one or two chemistries could really conceivably solve the problems that eVTOL has. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. So uh, there is scope for diversity, but definitely not as much as the EV industry. And again, that comes down to the point about specific energy, because in EVs, specific energy is important, but uh, for eVTOLs, it's really really important because uh, the there's really a, a sort of a lower uh, threshold in terms of uh, how low the specific energy can go, whereas uh, with EVs, it's it's a little more of uh, a sort of an optimization game uh, where you, you're trying to do trade-offs and you know figure out uh, what would be the best chemistry. So, uh, given that that lower uh, specific energy limit, uh, which would be somewhere around 200 ish at the pack level uh, for now, uh, for the applications that people are thinking about, uh, things like LFP. Even with uh, sort of new innovations like the blade battery and you know cell to pack technologies and things of that sort, even with all of those innovations, uh, the road to 200 uh, watt hour kg at the pack level is 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 uh, really not there. So uh, it really uh, leaves out a bunch of chemistries. It will be high specific energy uh, chemistries based on uh, high voltage uh, cathodes and things of that sort. It has to be high spec. Uh, in terms of the, the cell performance metrics. Uh, but there still is a lot of uh, scope for diversity in terms of, of the rate performance, in terms of uh, the lifetime of the battery and things of that sort. So, uh, for example, if you uh, take the Lilium jet, right, it's it's uh, proposed to be about a 3,000 uh, kg aircraft carrying about seven passengers. Uh, and if, if I'm not wrong, the range is around 170 to 160 to 170 miles. Now, one of the interesting things you'll see when you look at this aircraft is that you don't see any open rotors. Right? It's, it's all sort of contained in things called ducted fans. So this is sort of a, 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 a transition from the conventional EVTOL architecture that, that you popularly see with uh, multiple rotors on wings and so on. Uh, the reason is because the power requirements of the Lilium jet would be very different from something like the Joby S4. Uh, now, the Joby S4 obviously has a bunch of rotors with all open blades. You can really see the rotors and so on. Uh, 
Now, as you keep reducing the size of the rotor, the, the amount of power required to take off becomes larger and larger. So uh, the Lilium jet really requires a much higher power density compared to the Joby S4. So uh, you, can, you can see how certain chemistries could be tuned to meet the requirements of the Lilium jet, but those uh, tuning parameters are really not needed for something like uh, the Joby S4. So uh, high power, uh, high specific energy uh, cells will be the norm, but there is some you know, scope diversity in terms of certain performance metrics. If you were given $1 billion and you were told to fabricate a perfect EV toll battery, what chemistries would you put your money in? <laughs> That, that, that's a that's a great uh, thought experiment. So, uh, one billion dollars, let's say. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, like I said, we need high specific energy, high specific power. So, uh, and the other aspect that that we didn't uh, quite touch upon is uh, issues with certification, right? Because uh, the, with the aircraft industries, uh, safety is paramount. Reliability is really important, and uh, certifying battery packs for different applications uh, is, is is not as easy as it is with the automotive world. So uh, it, it also depends on time frame, right? If it is in the next couple of years to develop, uh, you know, or use some chemistry that's available and tune it for EV tolls, uh, it would be still based on current lithium ion simply because it's easy to certify. But uh, it would be tuned to uh, do high rate performance uh, with, you know, things like uh, uh, graded electrodes and aligned uh, pores and so on, where, you know, the rate performance is really not bottlenecked by anything. Uh, the cathode would most uh, likely be based on a high nickel uh, composition, simply because that gives the highest uh, specific energy. Uh, the anode side uh, would definitely use some some amount of silicon. So I see that uh, you know is not really innovative, but uh, from the aircraft certification and the aircraft sort of uh, industry point of view, uh, something that's reliable is a lot uh, a lot more uh, uh, useful than something that is you know new or very promising and. Uh, it really comes down to the, the way the industry is designed and what's at stake, right? Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the cell would be very similar to a lithium-ion cell, but with just enough performance improvements, which will, you know, facilitate the higher rate performance. And more into the future? As, as we go, let's say, uh, to five or five to ten year uh, timescales, uh, there are a lot of interesting uh, chemistries uh, around the corner uh, for electric aviation especially. Uh, so one of the things that our group uh, tries to do a lot of research on is uh, what's called LICFX, uh, lithium carbon, fluorine in, in you know, different compositions. So uh, it has a really high uh, specific energy. It's uh, So talking about it from the bare materials standpoint, it's uh, it has a specific energy on this at par with lithium air because instead of oxygen O2, you're basically replacing that with CF at, in, in some stoichiometric uh, composition. But, uh, and this has a lot of promise in terms of discharge rate performance, but the, 
biggest bottleneck right now is it's very hard to recharge. So if uh, we could basically swap out batteries and figure out a way to uh, recharge it in some other way, uh, we could probably still use LICFX batteries in airdrop. But uh, until the rechargeability uh, uh, problem is solved, uh, that is still, you know, uh, sort of uh, a promising technology that, that we should consider. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think one aspect that uh, is, is on everyone's mind really is, you know, uh, we had these incidences in the past where uh, batteries that were sort of futuristic uh, introduced in consumer electronics, causing explosions, fires, and with the risk of air travel um, and the interactions with changing pressure environments, changing temperature environments. Those are those are pretty extreme environments for a lithium-ion battery to stay stable in. Uh, how important is this safety aspect going to be for, for, for even like regular, uh, say, 100 feet in the air robo-taxis? That's a great, uh, great point. So, uh, yes, this, this is... Uh, but precisely why certification in, in uh, the aviation space is very hard, uh, whether it is, uh, uh, you know, moving passengers or goods. If an aircraft has to basically fly with batteries on board, uh, the batteries basically have to pass what is called an airworthiness uh, test. So uh, the, at least in the U.S., uh, the, the Federal Aviation uh, Authority and uh, in Europe, EASA, uh, the European uh, counterpart, uh, they have very strict rules on what kinds of tests these air, uh, these aircraft-grade uh, batteries really have to pass. Uh, this involve this inv- involves you know things like uh, 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 sort of well-designed uh, thermal runaway tests and sort of custom-made uh, 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 battery packs which are prone to failure, so that you try and see what the failure modes and so on and so on. So uh, the key here really is to know all the different ways in which a aircraft grade battery or an airworthy battery can fail and then having, uh, you know, uh, suitable fail safes for each of those, uh, each of those failure modes. So uh, one of the really good examples uh, for uh, a battery pack that's really undergone this this sort of process is the NASA X-Plane battery. So it's called the X-57. Uh, it's been in development for about uh, four or five years now, I think. Uh, so the battery pack uh, in an X-57 aircraft is... Uh, so the aircraft itself is basically uh, very similar to a Cessna, which is like a two, three passenger uh, aircraft, short uh, range. Now, um, the batteries of an X-57 aircraft, even if one cell in the battery pack undergoes thermal runaway, it's designed such that none of the, uh, I guess I shouldn't call it thermal runaway, but if, if one of them undergoes failure and catches fire, it doesn't really propagate to uh, the other cells. And this is one of the tests that uh, the, you know, the safety certification uh, procedures really try to uh, emphasize on. So if at all some cell goes into failure, how many cells does it take with it? And, you know, that's how you stop the thermal runaway from sort of engulfing the entire battery pack. So uh, there are a lot of measures, but uh, one of the interesting things here is that uh, a lot of these measures were put into place for auxiliary power unit batteries, right? 
uh, I'm sure uh, a lot of us would have heard of uh, the Boeing's uh, Dreamliner, uh, you know, uh, the fire incidents where the entire Dreamliner fleet was, you know, grounded in, I think, 2013-ish. Uh, so uh, there have been incidences, incidents of this sort, and there have been some, uh, some measures to try and uh, stop that from happening again. But with EV dolls and electric aircraft and drones and things of that sort, the scale of batteries and, and the kinds of batteries used are very different. So uh, there has been a lot of you know, lobbying and uh, a lot of companies involved in trying to get better regulation and uh, you know, better safety measures for, for these kinds of incidents. And uh, you know, with uh, talking about Tesla, you can see how uh, publicized each battery event really is, right? Uh, battery fire event. So uh, this will be most probably the case with EV tolls and drones and electric aircraft as well. So uh, this is really an important uh, aspect that, uh, of course, all of the aircraft companies are considering uh, very closely. Uh, it remains to be seen what kind of uh, you know tests uh, the, the administrations and you know the agencies really come up with. I wonder if we could zoom out a little bit um, because obviously a lot of the hype and interest is around eVTOL because that's really sort of creating a new market and a new service that hasn't really existed before. And so it's always interesting to see something new. But what is the potential for electrification in other sectors of aviation? For example, fixed-wing aircraft, um, either short, medium, or even long-range. I mean, obviously, decarbonization of every aspect of transportation is a key challenge over the next 30 years. And I think a lot of people would really like to be able to just stick a battery in, you know, a wide body jetliner and, you know, say we're done. So what are the prospects um, for electrification for other areas of aviation besides just uh, vertical takeoff and landing? Yeah. So the, the uh, of course, you know, EV dolls have really been one of the, the sort of uh, popular uh, products of the electric aviation space, but the electric aviation space is obviously, as you pointed out, much larger than just EV tolls. Uh, so there are, have been a lot of uh, uh, sort of explains and, and projects in development for short haul uh, aircraft electrification. So there are a few interesting statistics to consider here. Uh, so I was just working on uh, a paper recently with the research group and uh, what we saw was uh, about 20 to 25% of all flights uh, are really short haul. They're under 500 miles. And as you come closer to 200 miles, that that, that frequency of, of flights increases even more. Uh, and there really is a lot of scope to try and electrify these, these kinds of uh, routes. Uh, and again, coming back to specific energy, uh, the the I guess I can take this question slightly differently. So instead of uh, talking about specific energy, we should talk about the total weight of the aircraft itself, right? So just like uh, a semi-truck or an electric vehicle, it's composed of three main uh, components. One is the payload, whatever it's carrying, passengers, goods, or, or anything. Uh, the second is the battery weight itself. And the third is the weight of everything else, the structures, the airframe, and uh, you know the electronics and so on. So uh, 
whenever we talk about electrification, it's always an interplay between these three aspects, right? Uh, now with aircraft, obviously, given the specific energy of batteries uh, and the amount of weight that is really required to build the airframe and build all the other components, uh, at best, we can, like I said, get up to 100, 150 miles with current batteries. And as that improves, we can get up to 200, 250 miles. So the feasibility uh, of, of electric aviation uh, doesn't change too much from EV tolls to uh, electric air, conventional electric aircraft. But uh, the key really is uh, the high specific power requirements are not there anymore. There is a lot of scope uh, there uh, to electrify certain routes. Uh, so again, the, the NASA X-Plane is a great example of a short-haul uh, electric uh, aircraft. Uh, of course, the, the payload and the operational style and so on is still something that, that is going to be figured out in, in, in some time. But as we start thinking about uh, routes covered by things like, let's say, the Boeing the 737 or the Airbus 320 or you know, air, popular aircraft of that kind, uh, now we're talking about uh, distances of about 300 to 400 and 500 miles each. So there, uh, current batteries, and even you know, if we uh, move on to lithium metal batteries, they might be sufficient with a lower payload. So you're basically trading off some uh, payload you're carrying and, and uh, replacing that with batteries. Uh, but it, they still can't sort of answer the market demands in a reasonable manner. So uh, something beyond lithium metal uh, with conventional cathodes is required. So that could be, you know, lithium sulfur or uh, you know, lithium air, even if, if that problem is solved. Uh, yeah, there, there is a lot of scope but the very short haul, 150, 200, uh, 250 miles. But the minute we start crossing that, that upper bound, uh, we start running into a few problems. I wonder also if you could speak to the economics of electric aviation compared to conventional aviation. Um, I was having a conversation with a, with a follower on Twitter, um, and he was mentioning that particularly for piston engine fixed-wing aircraft, one of the biggest drawbacks from an economic and business point of view is downtime maintenance schedules and he said that he saw a lot of potential for electric motors and electric aviation to really be competitive in the marketplace not necessarily because it's you know a silver bullet technology but just because operating an electric aircraft for these short haul or utility routes is just would be potentially so much cheaper um i don't know if you can speak to that at all Definitely, uh, yeah, that that's an excellent uh, you know insight. So uh, again, there are a few interesting statistics to consider uh, here. Uh, now, when we talk about uh, uh, the operational cost or the total cost of ownership, or you know, uh, however we want to do our, our techno economics, so to say, uh, one of the important things is the aircraft lifetime. Right? Uh, unlike terrestrial vehicles, aircraft have a lifetime over twenty five years. So uh, the battery pack really is going to be replaced a few times uh, over its uh, lifetime. But uh, on the maintenance uh, uh, side of things, like you mentioned, uh, the amount of maintenance required for electric motors and the propellers that, that it runs are generally much lower than what it would be for a conventional aircraft, right? So that's a great uh, point. And the other uh, aspect that we need to consider for this discussion is the energy efficiency. 
all right, how much energy is consumed per uh, unit mile of heat. So uh, if, uh, if uh, you look at the conventional aircraft space and the EVTOL space, there have been a few uh, really interesting aircraft designs that have come up in the last uh, year or so. One of them is uh, Kitty Hawk's heavy side aircraft. So if you look at the energy consumption of that aircraft, it's about 120 watt hour per mile. Uh, so it's it's uh, basically about half of what a Model 3 would uh, consume per mile. And of course, there are a few caveats to this uh, point because uh, it's a single-seater aircraft and it, it can carry only about 100 kgs of payload. But uh, the, the other uh, side of that coin is it can get from one point to another much faster. So it, it has a cruise speed of about 180 miles per hour versus, you know, whatever it is with terrestrial vehicles. So the first point is uh, how, what the general lifetime is, which is about 25 years. Uh, we need to consider battery replacement. Maintenance is a great uh, uh, point where uh, electric motors really triumph over uh, conventional propulsion systems. Uh, the third is the uh, the fourth is the energy efficiency. So uh, this is where we see uh, uh, you know potential improvements to even uh, the energy consumption of uh, electric terrestrial vehicles. And then uh, the last point is travel time savings. So uh, the economics really uh, would comprise of these five uh, points. Maybe I might have missed a couple of uh, points as well, but these these are really the, the salient points here. Now. Uh, electricity is is obviously cheap compared to jet fuel, but that trade-off is not uh, similar to gasoline versus electricity. So jet fuel is is a lot more subsidized. It's a lot cheaper per gallon compared to gasoline uh, or petrol. Uh, so uh, the the unit costs uh, per unit mile or per unit passenger mile and things like that uh, uh, are not very similar to EVs. It 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 slightly favors the combustion side of things in the aircraft business, uh, but with the maintenance, with uh, you know, even after replacing battery packs and so on, there may be a little bit of an edge. But uh, yeah, it's it it's still hard to say what the operational costs would be. Uh, but yeah, it will be different from electric vehicles uh, simply because of those uh, the, the sort of different kinds of trade-offs that exist for aircraft. You, you are involved in one of these efforts to produce batteries. Uh, well, I heard from Bankat, from your supervisor, that uh, they you're running a project with a company trying to develop the perfect batteries or good batteries for electric aviation. Uh, could you talk? Can you talk about this? We can talk a little bit about it. So there's, there's obviously uh, sort of a, 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 a gamut of approaches and, and uh, things here. So... When we talk about the innovations required for uh, the electric aircraft industry on the battery side, there are material innovations, there are engineering innovations, and there's sort of an overall system-wide sort of innovations that are required. So uh, one of the ideas that that we're uh, uh, really uh, trying to look at seriously is uh, one to uh, find a new way to look at the battery management systems because. Uh, now, electric vehicles don't really keep a very close track of how much power is left in the battery or how much uh, energy to an extent, yes, but they're not very precise. So, uh, and the penalties for that uh, 
precision or the lack of information on power and so on in electric vehicles is not very high because worst case scenario, the, the car basically stops and doesn't recharge and you call the mechanic, right? Uh, or the electric vehicle uh, service and uh, personnel. So uh, that's not the case with uh, uh, electric aircraft. So the, the the difference could be whether the aircraft has enough power to land or, you know, does it have uh, any safety issues where you recharge it too quickly and it catches fire. And so there's, there's obviously a lot of new aspects and the penalties to uh, missing out on these kinds of information is very, very high. So high precision state estimation. So uh, each of these things, how much capacity is left, how much power is available, uh, what's the temperature, what is uh, the likelihood of one of the, the, the batteries entering some sort of a failure mode. So all of these things are could be considered states and monitoring these states, state of health, state of power, state of function, state of safety becomes really important. So uh, we are looking very closely at trying to develop uh, systems that monitor these states uh, as closely as possible. Uh, and and this obviously on, on one end improves the, the, the way the aircraft can operate in terms of uh, you know, uh, lower maintenance costs, faster certification timelines, and so on. And uh, more importantly, it improves, uh, one, the reliability, and second, uh, the potential, what's called the salvage value of the batteries, right? So like we discussed previously, uh, the limitation will not be uh, capacity fade. It will be power fade. So uh, if we you have to replace uh, the battery pack a bunch of times in the 25-year lifetime, uh, knowing what the salvage value of that battery pack would be for any other second life application will be uh, really crucial. So in a lot of ways, uh, the, the electric aviation uh, so-called revolution could also start the second life use of batteries uh, in, in sort of a, a collateral revolution, so to say. Uh, so those are some aspects we're looking at very closely. And on the material side of things, uh, obviously, uh, developing cells that can discharge very quickly is, is really important, right? Uh, so uh, now when you look at fast charging, you're really focusing on the anode because you want to put those lithium ions into the anode as quickly as possible. But uh, when you talk about fast discharge, you're re really looking at the other side of the cell, right? And uh, unfortunately, not a lot of focus is, is, is really on the other side of the cell. So uh, that's what we wanted to focus on, on the cathode, focus on the cathode interface, uh, focus on how to get uh, lithium ions into the cathode quickly and out of the anode uh, quickly. So yeah, those, those are sort of the broad uh, you know, list of areas uh, where innovations are required and, and where we're sort of focusing uh, some efforts. Do you have any really broad strokes insights about what's important for fast discharge? Definitely. So, uh, you know, whenever uh, we look at uh, I'll quickly talk about fast charge uh, a little bit and uh, and highlight a few points here, which are really useful to consider uh, when we talk about fast discharge. So one of the first things uh, anyone would see when they try to fast charge uh, a battery pack, let's say a Tesla Model S, you try to drive up to a supercharger, you want to charge it very quickly. The first thing it does is temperature modulation. Uh, so it tries to heat up the battery pack to uh, let itself take all that charge. So Simply speaking, it's just improving uh, the transport of lithium ions within the cell, uh, and that 
uh, obviously works both ways for charge and discharge. So temperature modulation is, is one really important uh, aspect. Uh, and, and the second is uh, when you look at the electrodes, right? Uh, the, the path that the lithium ions really have to take is, is not really straight. It's, it's a really tortuous path. So uh, even after uh, the lithium ion gets into the anode, by the time it can actually uh, sit in a place where it's eventually going to sit after it's fully charged, is, is going to take a lot of time. And similarly, on the cathode side of things, the path will be uh, tortuous. So straightening those paths out, uh, turns out, gives us a lot of uh, uh, improvements in terms of, uh, you know, uh, how much uh, current you can extract from the battery pack and so on, and how much penalties are really uh, paid to the resistance losses and things of that sort. So uh, temperature modulation is one, uh, uh, improving the tortuous parts and straightening them out is another. And one other tuning uh, parameter is uh, on the electrolyte side of things. So what's called the transference number. So uh, transference number basically tells you how much current is, uh, is, is being carried by the positive ions. So transference number for positive ions is basically uh, defined that way. And uh, obviously, if you improve the amount of current carried by the positive ions, you improve the overall current uh, of the cell, and you can get more out of the cell. So uh, there's really a lot of uh, uh, innovations that uh, can be done to the electrolyte to improve uh, such properties. So transference number, transport properties, and things of that sort. Uh, so there's no key bottleneck as such. There's obviously a rate limiting step for each cell, which would be the key thing that you look at. But th there's no key bottleneck uh, of any sort which uh, really limits the discharge performance. And uh, the interesting thing is that a lot of uh, batteries that we see currently, battery packs uh, or battery cells, they all have engineered limits on what, on what the discharge performance is. Uh, the fundamental li limits are completely different. So uh, when you think about energy, it's very easy to think about the fundamental limit, right? So how many, how, uh, basically a calculation of how many lithium ions are sitting in the cell will tell you how much the capacity is, whatever the voltage is, nominal voltage, and you get the total energy control. But there's no equivalent for power. So uh, uh, it, it is really a field where you want to both make the metrics uh, and, and sort, of, sort of also meet those metrics. So it's, it's, it's really a, a sort of a, a whole platter. You know? There's a number of things you really have to do to uh, you know, improve the, the discharge performance. If you can, um, cast your mind forward 10 years or nine years, I guess now. Uh, eight and a half to 2030. What do you think the electric aviation EV tall industry looks like, either from a technology point of view or from a market point of view, um, you know, business economics? How are we going to be thinking about electric aviation 10 years from now? <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a really nice question. So uh, 2030. I was talking about certification, and most of those certification timelines uh, are aiming for you know 2025, 2026. So uh, a lot of aircraft would obviously be certified and hopefully in operation for a few years by 2030. Uh, what I think would be uh, uh, a really key market is uh, the transport of goods and parcels and deliveries and so on. Uh, you know, think about Amazon. 
the number of uh, packages that they have to deliver on a daily basis in any given area in an urban uh, setting is just humongous. And uh, also think about how circuitous that path is that the delivery truck really follows. Uh, now, that could almost instantaneously change uh, if you shift to a drone or an EVTOL-based delivery system uh, because uh, you're only doing point-to-point deliveries uh, uh, at that point. And then uh, think about the other aspect about the energy efficiency uh, I was talking about. So uh, there's a scope for EVTOLs to be more energy efficient than uh, terrestrial vehicles simply because you know the fixed wings provide lift and that that segment doesn't consume too much energy. So uh, energy efficiency, point-to-point distance, and, and the travel times together, I think, uh, will lead to a marketplace where uh, EVTOLs and drones are uh, uh, used in sort of a very widespread manner for uh, delivery of goods and parcels and so on. Uh, and obviously, I, I, I really see a uh, market in terms of uh, people moving as well. So air taxis uh, will be a thing. Uh, it's unclear how popular they will be and uh, whether it'll just be you know, uh, a market that caters to the rich people to get to the airport quickly than everyone else or uh, will it actually be something that uh, you know, gains a lot more widespread adoption. Uh, so while the passenger uh, segment is, is still unclear, the, the goods delivery uh, uh, segment really seems very promising by 2030. Last question. What question do you wish people would ask you? So I guess <laughs> one question that uh, Wenkart gets asked a lot is uh, when do you think you would be sitting in a flying car? And uh, I guess your last question sort of uh, uh, touches on that aspect as well. Uh, but yeah, I think 2030 is, is, is probably a good time frame where uh, we can think about taking trips and flying cars. Shashank Shripad, thank you so much for coming on Cellsiders. Excellent. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for this week. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and share on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions you'd like our battery experts to answer, Please tweet at us. Our handle is at Cellsiders. That's C-E-L-L-S-I-D-E-R-S. Our theme music was composed by Seneca. He can be had on Twitter under at music underscore Seneca. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.